Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John's first three of, of three epistles are open letters to the church he wrote for circulation throughout the, uh, the growing Christian church back in the first century. It's probably best understood in light of his gospel, although nobody really knows which one of them was written first. Uh, we know they were written in the later years of his life, the waning years. He was the last surviving apostle of Jesus, and, and he's writing this uh, toward the end of the first century. John was getting up there in years. He's maybe in his 80s, uh, even his 90s by now, certainly feeling the weight of those years and, a way, and aware that his, his days on this earth were probably coming to a close. He lived a godly life. He had excellent memories to look back on, some difficult memories to look back on, and he's not afraid to share them all. His original homeland lay far away in Israel, but he'd long since settled in Ephesus, a largely pagan city on the Asiatic coast in Asia Minor. Most likely, he made his way there during the Roman Wars, which eventually engulfed and destroyed not only Jerusalem, but the beautiful temple as well. Those events brought a virtual end to Jewish national life as they'd known it, and, and its people were now scattered all across the empire. If Mary, Jesus' mother, were still alive, you can be sure that he brought her with him. You know, in that dark afternoon on Calvary, so many years before, as Jesus hung on the cross, he commended her into this beloved disciple's care, and it's unlikely John would ever have relinquished those responsibilities. And an example, really, of that special love that our lessons are talking about this morning. John was a son of Zebedee and Salome, who may have been the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. If that were the case, then John and Jesus would have been first cousins, which might explain why Jesus seemed to be so close to John. John even uh, described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was very aware of his special relationship with the Lord. He realized uh, uh, even before he was seated next to him at the Last Supper, leaned against Jesus. Uh, we know he was known to Caiaphas and actually got to enter the, the high priest's palace. And he seems to have been the only disciple who was on scene during the crucifixion. John had been a part of Jesus' inner circle, the three men who had received special care and training and experience, along with his brother James and their fishing partner, Peter. By nature, the Zebedee boys had a fiery disposition. Jesus had nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. By the time he writes his gospel, though, he'd mellowed from years of living in God's grace and likely was serving as a bishop of the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Most scholars assume that the other three gospels had been written uh, before John sits down to write his biography of the Lord. Uh, since Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already provided sufficient narratives about the main events in Jesus' life, John could uh, assume that his readers had access to that information, and that freed him up to include more of Jesus' teachings and discourses. The letter is really a good follow-up reading to his gospel because it explains what we're supposed to do with the good news. In opposition to growing heresies of the day that insisted Jesus was only human, the son of Joseph, the earthly son of Joseph, John is always about Jesus' divinity. His detractors also taught that there was no incarnation, no virgin birth, no bodily resurrection, that the Bible was an insufficient source of information, and that the apostles had no authority to tell people how to live or how to think. So the result was that believers were beginning to lose their confidence in the scriptures, and they were losing the certainty of being saved that they'd had. And they drifted into unrepentant, sinful lifestyles and 
and uh, unloving attitudes toward their church, toward their families. So John's letter takes direct aim at those issues. It's a powerful blast of truth uh, and rebuke and love designed to bring people back into a stronger, more vital relationship with the Lord. He reminds them in this letter that since God is light and God is love, real Christians always combine right thinking with right living. Belief and behavior are inseparable. One simply can't exist without the other. He's telling us how we're supposed to respond to the great love God has shown us by sending his own son to suffer and die in our place. You know, what our faith should look like in practice. And not surprisingly, he says it should look a whole lot like love. He can't say it enough. In the chapter leading up to our lesson today, he says, God is love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God in him. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's all from 1 John chapter 4, right before... Uh, our reading comes from chapter 5. In Matthew's gospel, an expert of the law uh, came to Jesus, and he tested him with this question. He said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus had just boiled down all the Ten Commandments, all the law, really, to their very essence. Love God and love others. That pretty much covers everything God expects from us. So what John's doing in this part of his letter, our lesson this morning, is showing us a way to gauge how we're doing at that. He says, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, we can get that. That's easy, right? God brings us to faith. God gifts us with faith, really, through his Means of grace, word and sacrament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The means of grace are the, the, uh, the tools by which God connects us to his, his free gifts. Um, like most of you, I was born of water and the Spirit at my baptism. So by faith, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That assures me of my future with God because uh, it made me a child of God. But then John goes on to say, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that the children of God, uh, we, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Uh, that part, maybe not so easy. You know, he's saying that real faith and love are inseparable. I love the Father for sending his Son to suffer and die for me, so I must love all God's children because, well, that's, that's what godly love does. But do I love everybody in his extended family, which makes up about a third of the world because that's how many Christians there are? And the word he chose isn't the word for romantic love or, or brotherly love. It's the word used for the kind of love Jesus loved us with, agape love, sacrificial love. Now, it sounds great on paper, doesn't it? All kumbaya. But in real life, in practice, you know, how much would you sacrifice for another person? Even if it was another believer that you'd never even met. You know, would you be more likely to go out of your way for a stranger, say, on your way home from church today? The opportunity arose, or maybe, maybe you would. But what about tomorrow? Because it won't be so fresh tomorrow. Or what about Tuesday? If you're getting ready to sit down for dinner with your family on Wednesday night, maybe not so much. 
It's really hard to know, I suppose, until you're faced with that decision, isn't it? We'd like to think we know what we do. Jesus talks about laying down your life for a friend. That's how far loving your neighbor should go. But in practice, how far, uh, is that really how far loving our neighbor would go? See, he talks about our neighbor being everybody. Luther makes that emphasis too. Um, even people we've never met. Is it even imaginable, let alone possible, that we could even love all God's children that much? John says that it is. And he says that we can know we love all God's children that much. He says we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Well, what are his commandments? Jesus just gave us the short version. Love God and love others. If you're loving God and others, then you must love the children of God because they'd be included in all the others, wouldn't they? And then he says because you love the children of God, you know you love God because if you love God, you also love his children. It gets kind of circular, doesn't it? What he's saying is you can't claim to have one unless you have the other. That's really the circle of life in Christ. You know you love the Father because you love his children, and you know you love his children because you love the Father and keep his commandments. Now, the picture that comes into my mind is a revolving door. Uh, but that's, that's okay, but there's a weak spot in that analogy. Where is it? You know, where does that circle come apart in real life and, and in real time? Because we know it does. You know, we've seen way too much uh, surveillance video recently of attacks by strangers on Asian people where, where others are just standing by filming or uh, they walk away instead of coming to their aid. Now, I guess we might say, well, those bystanders probably weren't Christians or maybe they're just Christmas and Easter believers. Don't be so sure. You know, when it comes to getting involved and, and putting our own neck on the line, we can only hope that we would step up and step in to help. It's a huge challenge. I'm sure that if we worked on it long enough and hard enough, we could love some other believers the way God has in mind for us, sacrificially. But, you know, can I just be friendly with most of the others and still get by? The true test of obedience to Jesus' command isn't how many friends you have. It's what kind of friend you are. If all we needed was lots of friends, we could just rent some. Seriously. Over a decade ago now, Scott Rosenbaum caught a vision. He didn't see why a great friend couldn't be had uh, starting at 10 bucks an hour. Uh, that's the kind of great idea you go to your friend with, and you go, I had this great idea last night. I need $20,000 to help me you know, carry it through. And you'd probably go, let me get back to you on that. Rent-a-friend? That's what he did, though. He founded rentafriend.com. Not only is it still going and still growing, uh, it's gone worldwide. The concept is to connect you for a negotiable fee with a great friend for almost any situation. You know, maybe you're in need of a buddy to hang out with at a game, or you'd like a local resident to walk you around a new city. Maybe you're dying to see a movie now that the theaters are opening and, and, you, and you don't want to sit by yourself. Or you'd like a friend to sit with you in church. You could rent somebody. <laughs> I'm looking for somebody to meet you at the gym to encourage you while you exercise, right? Or maybe somebody to seek advice from. This is going to spill all your secrets to your friends and your family. Maybe you'd like to go to Six Flags when they fire up again or a concert or, or you have tickets to a sporting event and you don't want to go alone. Maybe you're a senior who could use a little help once in a while or maybe just some conversation. Maybe you run a few errands. Maybe somebody to, to, to be your partner, cards. Now, they're not hired help exactly, just paid friends. 
practically anything you can think of that might be more fun with somebody else, you can finally, you can probably find on Run a Friend. And because I'm, I care about you so much, uh, I thoroughly checked it out this week. And there are a lot of people who are willing to be your friend right around here in Camarillo in Ventura County. It's pretty amazing, but I didn't see you there. But maybe I didn't look hard enough. So uh, it's really not what you think. You're thinking, oh, no, I know what that's all about. But it's not a dating site. It's not an escort service. Uh, number one rule is uh, no touching. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. It doesn't, uh, really does seem to exist simply to connect people like you uh, with paid for but a completely platonic uh, friend. That's it. Registered friends list the, the kind of things they like to do. And uh, when you connect with them, they'll tell you what they chuck. There was somebody on there who wants to jump out of an airplane. Be your friend. If you want to jump out of an airplane, there's somebody waiting for you to be your friend and do that uh, so they can call your relatives in case the chute doesn't open. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cheap insurance for $10 an hour. But it could cost more, I suppose. There's another side, too. There's a, maybe you don't need any more friends, right? Most of you are friendly people. You don't need any more friends. That's okay. If you're good at striking up a conversation... If you're good at meeting new people and you could use a few extra bucks, you're invited to join Rosenbaum's team by, by uh, posting your own profile to become one of his freelance friends. Since going worldwide, there are over 621,000 friends waiting to meet you as of this week. I even tried other countries, tons of people. Pretty amazing. Now, Jesus, of course, is talking about being you know, much more than just a friend for rent with his disciples this morning. As his ministry is winding down in our gospel lesson, he's talking about being an extreme friend, one who's willing to go the distance for you. And he's talking about himself, who from our point of view, 2,000 years into his future, as he's saying this, uh, he already did. You know, I've never had anyone pound nails through my wrists and feet, nailing me to a cross and leave me hang there with all my weight by that. How much do you suppose that hurt? Probably a lot, huh? He endured all that pain for you and me. That's the kind of love that he and John are both talking about this morning. And love, by its very nature, is reciprocal, right? Can you think of anything you wouldn't do for someone who, who suffered and died in such a horrible way so that you could have eternal life as his free gift? That's what Jesus is asking. Love one another as I have loved you. John assures us that we have everything we need. Faith in the Holy Spirit to be able to pull that off. John and Jesus both are coming from the same place, and they expect us, as children of God, to be right there along with them. Faith has already overcome the world because it connects us to, to the Lord's victory on Calvary in his empty tomb. Now, neither of them are asking us to do something we haven't already been enabled to do as God's free gift, love. Our lessons this morning are perfect for Mother's Day, because they're all about love in its highest form. You know, some of us might have a little problem with love being a command from the Lord instead of a request, but is he really asking all that much from us in return for all he gives? No, I don't think so. That's what agape love is all about, Christian love. That's the kind of love Jesus showed us when we were so undeserving. Love is a command we're enabled to keep by the Holy Spirit working in us, even the hardest love of all. Sacrificial love. Every parent worth their salt understands this. There's nothing we won't do for our kids. Of course, these days, since people are living you know, well into their old age, 
uh, the time is more and more likely to come when it's going to be the, the parents who need that sacrificial love from their kids. It's part of that, that circle of Christ revolving door. Our parents provided for our needs when we were young, and now maybe they have pressing needs of their own. Who's going to be there for them if you're not? Who will see to it that those needs, if they're really serious, are met by a capable, loving caregivers? There's only you. A lady named Bev talks about a time years ago when her mother needed a new dress. Bev confesses she's not the most patient person in the world. She really didn't look forward to shopping with her mom, but you know they set off for the mall together regardless. They visited nearly every store that carried ladies' dresses, and her mother tried on one after another, rejecting every one. As the day wore on, Bev grew a little weary, and her mother, she got frustrated. Finally, at their last stop, her mother found a lovely three-piece blue dress, and the, bow, the blouse had a bow at the neckline. And as Bev stood in the dressing room with her mom, she watched as her mother tried with much difficulty to tie that bow. Her hands were so badly crippled from arthritis that she couldn't do it. Immediately now, Bev's impatience gave way to an overwhelming wave of, of compassion for her mom. She turned away to try to hide the tears that, that welled up involuntarily. Regaining her composure, she turned back to her mom and tied the bow for her. The dress was beautiful, and her mother bought it. Their shopping trip was over, but that event was etched forever in Bev's memory. For the rest of the day, her mind kept returning to that moment in the, in the dressing room and to the vision of her mother's hands trying to tie that bow. Those loving hands that had fed her, bathed her, dressed her, caressed and comforted her, and most of all had prayed her, prayed for her, were, were now touching her in a totally unexpected way. Later in the evening, Bev went into her mom's room, took her, her mom's uh, hands in her own and kissed them. And then, really much to her own surprise, she told her mom that, that to her, they were the most beautiful hands in the whole world. Bev says she's so grateful that God let her see with new eyes what a precious, priceless gift a loving, sacrificing mother is. She prays that someday her own hands and her heart will have earned such a beauty of their own. Maybe you can connect with that story. You know, maybe you remember the many loving sacrifices your mom or dad made on your behalf. And now you watch sadly as your parents start struggling with aging. And in your heart, you know that, that it's your turn to make those sacrifices. It's not easy. You know, Jesus never promised that love would be easy. But he did promise and demonstrate that Christian love, Christian living, would probably be sacrificial. All our love talk is really empty without love action. Now, we may reach the finish line of our race battered and bruised and beaten from all the times we struggled and fell short along the way. But by faith, faith has already conquered this world. And it's faith that drives us on. Jesus never asked more from us than he has enabled us to do. And he never will, beginning and ending with love. Amen. Now may that very special uh, peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment to